We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Woi Wurrung Nation, traditional custodians of the lands of which we record this podcast. We recognise the care and cultivation of country by First Peoples and pay respects to Elders past and present. That respect is extended to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the Diggers Podcast, the podcast for subversive gardeners looking to explore the unconventional and potentially controversial concepts that push the boundaries of traditional gardening. Join us as we challenge the status quo and discover new ways to grow and cultivate the world around us. Welcome to the Diggers podcast series, where we discuss the hot horticultural topic, eucalypts, friend and foe. The iconic tree has been a topic of conversation and debate for many years, and over the course of this series, we'll be talking to people from all sides of the argument, plus exploring more widely trees in our urban and wild areas. Hello to you. My name is Chloe Foster, horticulturalist, teacher and broadcaster from Melbourne, Australia, hosting on behalf of the Diggers Club and Foundation. Diggers is a gardening club and community specialising in conservation and preservation of a wide range of heirloom vegetables and rare fruits and plants. Today, I'm chatting with Joost Backer, designer and environmental activist. In 2012, Joost opened the world's first zero-waste restaurant, Silo. Over the last 25 years, Yoast has highlighted the world's wasteful ways by using multiple platforms from art installations, floristry, design and architecture into bars and restaurants. I'm very pleased to welcome Yoast to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let me start out with one of my favourite questions to ask plant people. What is your favourite plant? That's hard. <laughs> it's, it's a hard question. Yeah, I mean, I have a, every week I've got a different favourite plant. At the moment I'm picking Physifolia, a variety called Precious Pearl. Yeah. And it is unbelievably beautiful. It smells amazing and my yeah. bees are going crazy for it as well. What does the flower colour look like? It's a pale soft pink with a lime green heart mm-hmm. and it drips. So when I'm carrying armfuls of it, oh. my whole back is yeah, soaked okay. with with nectar. Oh, beautiful. And um, yeah, I've got quite a few different. That one was bred by some friends of mine, Alan, Alan Schwartz, through uh, the Native Plant Project. Yeah. And my property is planted out with, I've got, I'm picking something different every week of the year. Yeah. So last week I was picking uh, belladonna lilies and, and uh, I've just started picking uh, sedums. Mm-hmm. They've come into flower. So, but definitely the Physifolia Precious Pearl. You are a cut flower grower as your one of your main uh, jobs, but you wear many hats. Tell me about the different hats that you wear. Well, I'm not professionally trained in anything, <laughs> but I do give everything a go. I left yep. school when I was in year 11. Mm-hmm. I was kind of asked to leave. And yeah, just passionate about the environment and quite practical. Grew up on a farm and my mum's an artist. My dad's a farmer, very practical. Mm. And just started realizing in the early 90s when I started my business, I set up in Melbourne, I was determined to get fresh flowers into every single 
store in Melbourne. Mm. So I started knocking on doors in 1993 and within a year I had Laura Ashley, Country Road, Esprit, lots of offices and um, even convinced McDonald's to put <laughs> fresh flowers. I had 140 McDonald's stores at really? one stage. And the idea was to get fresh flowers from the Dandenongs and box them up and, and send them out. And that led me to meet restaurateurs and then I got sort of involved with the restaurateurs and fell in love with floristry. So I started creating floral installations that were quite unique because I wasn't trained by anyone. So I just did it my own way and, and kind of juxtaposed waste. Mm -hmm. So it could be fire hydrants that I found or cables or mm. wire, fencing wire, and just quickly built up a name. Well, not quickly, I suppose. I did it over a 10-year period. But by the end of the 90s, I was doing a lot of installations and, and getting commissions to you know, create art and exhibitions. And at that point, Jenny and I decided that we needed our own farm because I was constantly foraging and getting in trouble <laughs> and, you know, picking fennel from the side of the road that was covered in aphids. And I just yeah. thought, if I grew this, I can grow it so that it doesn't yeah. get covered in aphids. And yeah. so we purchased a small farm out the outside of Monbok. And yeah, I've planted over close to 10,000 plants on there and over a thousand varieties and planted it so that every week, Year round, I've got something different to pick. Yeah. How'd you go about the plant selection for those? Just stuff that I love. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. just plants that I'm passionate about. And yeah. I'm also, I grow them organically. So anything that can't grow that well, mm -hmm. I just move on. Mm. Um, it's planted out like a vineyard. Yeah. And I used to also have a, a couple hundred chickens that we used to supply Attica with eggs every week. And um, so we would move the chickens constantly. So we had them forage underneath the trees and so I, I, I've got like rows of things like Quercus rubra, um, eucalyptus, lots of natives, lots of exotic uh, trees, and then interplanted with low. So it could be ginger or dahlias or mm. – so, yeah, it's a real – it's what you call a biodiverse farm. Yeah, that's fantastic. So with the zero waste concepts and work that you do, did you sort of – through supplying these restaurants with cut flowers, was that how you realised – how much food is wasted? Well, as a florist, you enter restaurants through the rear door and it just blew my mind, Yeah, you know. It's and late 90s was quite an exciting time in Melbourne because of new liquor license laws, lots of small bars and restaurants opening. And I was kind of the go-to guy at the time to create art and installations. So I was doing things like the Hairy Canary and the Gin Palace and the Supper Club and all these amazing places were opening and I was – creating installations in them and became really good friends with a lot of them. Yeah. And they're still my friends today. And I just started having discussions with them about, look, doesn't need to be this way. And then, you know, after we purchased our farm as well, I wanted to build a, a natural home for my family to grow up in, a home that had no toxins, no mm. toxic paints and made from straw. So I started visiting places that were built out of straw and didn't really like them that much. The, des the design of them or how they were built? Just the way they smelt and yeah, the way okay. they didn't like, I, I've got quite a modern aesthetic, so I wanted something with tall ceilings and lots of light. Yep. And for conventional straw bale houses, you needed big eaves, the walls couldn't get wet. And so I came up with my own concept of a steel frame. I love steel, like yeah. spending a lot of time, like I've been to every recycling yard in <laughs> Melbourne and I understand I really became close with a lot of recyclers and just realized how difficult we make 
it for for stuff to be recycled. Mm. So I wanted to design a house made from mostly found materials and recycled materials, but also at the end of my life or in 100 or 200 years from now when that house gets pulled down, every single element can be pulled out and recycled and it's not toxic. So we, mm. yeah, built. I built my own house and um, couldn't find anyone to build it, so I had to build it ourselves. Couldn't find anyone to design it, so I had to design it myself okay. and then close friend of mine, Earl Carter, photographed it and it got on the cover of Vogue and then it got on the cover of Interiors Magazine in the United States and got on lots of covers in Europe and other places and suddenly everyone's saying, oh, you're the architect, the design, <laughs> design's amazing. I just designed my house, right? So yeah. a friend of mine- Yeah. And I think it just really resonated with people, a natural home, yeah. you know, like we didn't, like we sealed the timber with soap and mm. we just used natural materials. And and then a good friend of mine, Professor Rob Adams at the City of Melbourne said, you know, why don't you build a prototype of your house at Federation Square? And that's how Greenhouse started in 2008. Yep. And then we, of course, implemented lots of initiatives. I thought this is a really good opportunity to, so we had wine on tap. So I convinced uh, Gary Crittenden and Phil Sexton to put wine in kegs. Yeah. No one had heard of this idea of having wine on tap. Oh, but really? Yeah. And they thought I was crazy. Yeah. I mean, Phil Sexton especially said, I don't really want to do this because my branding is on the bottle. And I said, well, I think this is a future. And it was really interesting. That was 2008. And in 2012, he told me that he'd sold more wine in kegs than in <laughs> really? bottles, you know, when the whole Moscato thing took off and yeah, so I kind of just developed all these ideas and systems for like milk, you know, and just developed a system for milk. So mm. it's insane that we use 8 million milk bottles a day, you yeah. know. So I gave Dairy Farm, this uh, Simon Schultz, these stainless steel kegs, and then we developed a, a tap system for milk and worked with Hepburn Springs Mineral Water to get stainless steel uh, mineral water in, in on tap and we made our own tonic water. We made our own cola with cola beans. Mm. I imported quinine bark from Brazil, so we made our own tonic. We got gin, locally made gin in, in 20 litre stainless steel barrels. We got whiskey in barrels. We, you know, so we basically worked out a way to eliminate waste out of everything. Right. And uh, we didn't have to make more stuff from scratch. So we'd make our own butter. We'd get 20 litre pails of cream, churn our own butter. We milled our own flour. We rolled our own oats. We, it just meant kind of going back to basics. Yeah. And I remember my dad Was saying- Was this all for silo? Greenhouse. So greenhouse, greenhouse was really where we did, where we tested and developed a lot of the ideas. Yeah, but by 2011, I did the greenhouse in Sydney, which was quite big. But at the same time, you know, I got huge publicity in, but I felt that the ideas weren't really grabbing on. Mm. And I came to the conclusion that it was because people would walk in and the walls are covered in strawberries. There's plants on the roof. There's gardens mm. on the roof. There's all these systems for zero waste. There's music blaring. There's art on the walls. It was overwhelming. Yeah. You know, in every sense, you know, touch, smell, sight. Yeah. And I thought, let's open a cafe that looks like a generic cafe. Yeah. Like any other Melbourne cafe, but that's got no bin. And I, I hate to say it, but Silo was probably more successful at, at, right. at you know, getting zero waste, that concept to the yep. world. Yeah. Because suddenly all over the world, people were talking about this little cafe that had no bin. Mm. And I designed it so that the restaurant, the kitchen was the dining room. 
Mm-hmm. So there was nowhere to hide. It wasn't like we were hiding mm. bits of rubbish anywhere. Yeah. So people could watch and see how we did everything. And at one time out, Best Cafe in Melbourne and, you know, it, all the systems were on display yeah. and it just went crazy. So with Silo, what are the systems? Like how is there no waste? Oh, well, again, like with, with Greenhouse, we worked with uh, Genovese Coffee and yeah. we had paintings. And, you know, the used coffee bags, we just cut out the little air, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, it needs to breathe, of course, otherwise that can explode. And so we just cut them and put them into tins. And those tins are still being used today, mm-hmm. 12 years later. Organic waste, which was pretty much the only waste that we had. We had yeah. an inversal composter from Korea right. that turned, uses bacteria and heat. Yep. It's a brilliant system. Yeah, okay. And uh, we had that in the laneway and, and the kegs just got returned yep. and, you know, the crates with all the fresh produce, just, it was, as my dad said, I can't understand why you're getting all this publicity because this is what we used to do. <laughs> yeah, There's right. nothing new here. This yeah. is like you're just stealing ideas from the past. What they used to do, what his family used to do or what was previously well, done Well, what in was Holland? normal even 50, 60, oh, not just Holland. I think yeah. it was all over the world. Yeah. So, we're yeah, 2012, I kind of felt the same way about Greenhouse because Greenhouse in 2008 was 308 square metres, the footprint, which was exactly the same footprint as the average Australian house at the time. And I wanted to prove that a house could be self-sufficient, inspired by a book that Clive wrote 25 years ago. Okay. And, you know, I felt again that that idea didn't really come across. Everybody talked about greenhouse as a restaurant. So that's when I started to develop the idea of a future food system, a specific house. Yeah. That is a two-bedroom house. It's not a restaurant. It's a house. So that when people look at it, they can actually go, wow, if we change the way we build, you know, that can be our power plants for the future. That mm. could be generating electricity. That could be generating food. That could be harvesting water. We don't need to be relying on all this infrastructure and transporting stuff all over the world. Mm. So with with Greenhouse, and, and we've, been, we've been talking about food waste, but the other systems that you had in place for, well, either – grey or blackwater waste, but what about electricity and, and power in the house too? So solar panels on the roof? Yeah, solar panels on the roof and then we had a biodigester from Israel. Okay, that, tell um, me about that. Well, it's really, it's actually not not uncommon. I believe there's over 5 million households that have biodigesters, mainly in India, China and mm-hmm. Bangladesh. But it's every person on earth produces a kilo of organic waste a day. Mm-hmm. It's actually in the Western world a little bit less. It's about 800 to 900 grams. Oh, right. And in the third world, it's about 1.2 to 1.3 kilos because in the third world, most people make food from scratch. Yeah. So they have more organic waste. Yeah. Every kilo converts to an hour of methane, an hour of gas, flame. So we're currently wasting 8 billion hours of potential energy every single day. Wow. And so what we did at, at the house is we put it through a – an incinerator, and then it was connected to a cow's stomach, basically. It's a man-made, human-made cow's stomach, yeah. a bladder. Yeah. And it can be any tank. And what it does is it mimics a cow's stomach. It, it, it's inoculated with cow manure, mm-hmm. which has got all the probiotics and all the bacteria in it, and it breaks it down and it produces a gas. But it breaks it down into this incredible fertilizer that then goes back onto the plants. So the gas is used for can be used for power. hot water, yeah, electricity, right. um, yeah, fantastic, um, and cooking, then, and then the other byproduct, yeah, as a 
fertilizer or compost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyone that's made compost with cow manure knows that it's next level, right? Once you add cow manure to compost, that's why a cow's sacred in India because yeah, India's got okay. they've harvested food from soils for over a thousand years. Mm. There's very few cultures other than the Chinese that have consistently been able to harvest food. That's so true. Yeah. From the same soil. Whereas the rest of the world is constantly destroying soil, mm. including the Romans, you know, mm. and seeking fresh soil further mm. away. And so India understands that cows are critical to bringing nutrients back to fertility, back to their soils. And they have this incredible system, biology in their cow's stomach that creates almost like superfood for plants. Mm. Add it to compost and then make compost or add it to soil and worms go crazy for it. And that's basically what we're doing with a biodigester. So okay. this makes so much sense that I believe that in a very short period of time, every single house on earth will have a biodigester. What's the availability of these at the moment? Well, I got mine from Israel. I actually yeah, took it yeah. back on a plane. Oh, did you? <laughs> So there's a couple of Oshik, who is a bit of a legend, a bit of a hero of mine. He yeah. was traveling, backpacking through India, I don't know, probably 15 years ago now, yeah. saw these systems and thought, why aren't we doing this in Israel? And started uh, Home Biogas, okay. a really successful company in Israel. Yeah. And they've just received a, a New York-based billionaire has uh, brought it into the business and they're now Amazing. developing a system that can go into every apartment in New York. Mm-hmm. Basically goes into like a hot water service, goes into a wall cavity. It's got a jacket on it. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, the key is to keep the temperature consistent. Yeah. The reason why it's so successful in places like India is because it's warm enough for it to, you know, so if it's running at 35 degrees, that's ideal. Yep. So at cold places, it's, yeah, it's not ideal. Challenging. There's a, a great young Scottish dude that's invented a system for cold climate. So it looks like an egg. It's called a green egg mm. and uh, it can handle a family's household waste mm. and the gas can get used for hot water boosting and cooking. How can people find out more about these systems that are available? On my Instagram, not my personal Instagram, on Future Food System mm-hmm. Instagram, I've broken all the elements down into highlights. Mm-hmm. So if you want to know about biogas, there's a link in the highlights to biogas and it's got all of the links in the stories Fantastic. Why, how, yeah. um, the potential energy, the benefits. Yeah. In the meantime, though, I mean, actually, before I get to that question, at the moment, what are the costs of some of these systems? Well, you can set a biodigester up yourself for, you know, 80 bucks, 90 yeah. bucks. It's not an, yeah. This is not a rocket science. It's using a 44-gallon drum if you want to. Amazing. There's so many videos on YouTube on how to set one up. Yeah. If you don't feel confident, you can buy a home biogas system for 600 bucks. Lands, it comes in a box. That's, they're achievable prices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yep. So in the meantime, though, if people, for whatever reason, can't access some of this new technology, what can people do in their own homes to reduce their food waste? Well, grow your own food yeah. and cook food from scratch. Those two things will mm. save you so much waste. Mm. Learn fermentation. Fermentation is incredible at, you know, will basically reduce waste down to zero. Yeah. Because almost everything can be fermented. Yeah. And yeah, have a worm farm. You know, the, the a lot of people struggle with worm farms. Uh, the best, it's hard rubbish at the moment where we are. Okay. A filing cabinet for two people is perfect. As a worm farm. Two filing cabinets is perfect for a family. You get a little styrofoam box from a cafe that they get fish or whatever in, put one in each drawer. Yeah. And 
you know, constantly loading worm farms up with food is a problem. So giving them a break and allowing them to break that material down. Mm -hmm. So having a four-week cycle is perfect. So if you've got four styrofoam boxes in each drawer and you just, you know, have one drawer for each week and then by the time you get to the bottom one, you can empty it straight onto your garden because the worms will have broken everything down. Mm. If you find that that's not right, we'll get a second filing cabinet and and it's great because filing cabinets are vermin proof. They're just so easy to use. And but they'll, and they'll still let air in. As they'll well. let plenty of yeah. air in. Yeah, yeah. What you know, you'll idea. still find that if there's a thunderstorm, yeah, worms will always. That's just what they do. When the air pressure changes, they will find a way out because they think they're about to flood. Okay, it's. You know, I didn't know that. That's a fascinating fact. Oh, yeah. If you see yeah. worms crawling up the wall, there's a big thunderstorm probably a day away or, oh, or usually, six hours away. Okay. I usually look for ants climbing up a wall, but I've never heard of worms before. Yeah, yeah. Worms will do it as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Composting is a massive component to minimizing food waste. Yep. Um, it's a good way of dealing with food, organic food waste as well. Before we move on, what are some different composting systems that people could use? Well, there's so many out there. The system that I kind of like is just you can have a hole in the ground in the middle of your veggie patch and actually just bury it in the, mm. in the ground and then the worms, especially if it's in a veggie patch. Yeah. People don't realize how hungry vegetables are, mm. especially cabbages, kale. This idea of having a veggie patch and always growing, like I've got dahlias in, in the garden that has been my veggie patch for the last eight years just because it needs a rest and mm. it needs to rejuvenate, even though I reintroduced tons of compost. You cannot underestimate how hungry vegetables are. And so yeah. I use rock dust. I use um, – I'll dig trenches and I'll just put straight compost in the, yeah. in, in the trenches. Often I'll get like things from rock pool. So it yeah. could be fish, heads, fish, guts, bones, and I'll dig a trench half a meter deep, bury it all, yeah. and then I'll plant my silver beet on top of my kale. Yeah. And then by the time a year from later – then I'll go back and maybe put beans or something else or carrots because that material will all be gone, especially if, you're, if your veggie patch is biologically rich. Mm. So composting, just the traditional methods is great as well. Mm. I always find that there's a problem with, especially if there's food waste with mice and rats. So, you know, use a barrel or use another way. Yeah. Worm farms are brilliant, especially in a, in a filing cabinet. Yeah. Oh, and a great way of controlling the vermin, which – does put a lot of people off from having yeah. um, compost systems yeah. in their place, no matter what type. Back to where you where you live. So your property, I'm going to make an assumption, is probably surrounded by a number of eucalypt gum trees. Yeah, and I've planted quite a few on there as well. Okay, for foliage? Foliage, yeah. And flowers? I, yeah. And, well, yeah, you said you had the um, I don't know how many varieties flowers. I've got now, but uh, be over 100. Up in the Dandenong, surrounded by eucalypts, there's a threat, particularly at this time of year over summer, there's a threat of fire. How do you manage that? And that and that from a land managed perspective, when it comes to fire, how do you manage it on your property? Well, it's really interesting this because I came here as a nine-year-old in October, late October 1982, and to the Dandenong mm-hmm. Ranges. Yep. And we first thing we experienced was a dust storm. Yeah, okay. Then the hailstorm. Yes. The dust storm was like nighttime in the middle of the day. It was crazy. Then we, the family managed to get a house in Callista. Mombok Callista Road was rented a, rented a house and there was just a traffic jam in front of the house. You know, it was Ash Wednesday. 
couldn't see a thing. There was no power. There was no, there were no phones coming from Holland. That's so they so scary. The smell, the stuff falling from the oh, sky. Yeah. The kids in the previous day because I mean it wasn't just one day. It wasn't like Black yeah. Saturday. It was it went on for quite a while. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just the tension at school. You know the, the kids, other kids, parents in a fire brigade, just exhausted and. Anyway, um, we were lucky the fire front moved and moved away from. We ended up driving to a friend's house that was surrounded by nursery. So we felt more comfortable. We just mm. stayed there the night. Like if you saw where we lived, you know, 70, 80 meter tall mountain ash yeah. on the other side of the road, right? Yeah. Anyway, it had such a profound effect on me that I think it's crazy now, but a lot of times I get called up as almost like an expert when it comes to bushfire just because I designed my house out of straw and steel. Now, the council wanted a bushfire expert to give an analysis of my straw bale house before they gave me a permit. So I was, you know, this is back 2004, 2005, so I'm looking for bushfire experts. Yeah. Keep coming back to Justin Leonard, who's with the CSIRO, left him messages on his phone. Uh, he's a good friend of mine now. So in the end, I ended up just posting. I had an address, right? So I just posted all my drawings to him. Yeah. Made copies of them, posted them, yeah. and then he called me. I've just received your drawings. You've designed an unbelievably bushfire-resistant house. Do you realize that? And I've gone, nah. Anyway, it was the start of a friendship. And he, I just said, I, need, I just need you to write that in a letter so I can give that <laughs> yeah, to counsel. yeah. But we just stayed in touch, became friends, and and he told me about different methods, and we started talking about all different kinds of ways, and we've worked together a lot, including doing a bushfire. They've got a bushfire simulation test, the only one of its kind in the world, where they simulate a wildfire in Mogo on their test site. Thousands of ways to monitor the tests. They wait till the wind speed's high enough, and they use 4,000 litres of gas to simulate a wild bushfire. That, mm. you, so you build basically a house, and they try and burn it down. Yep. And it was mind-blowing because I really got a sense of how dangerous like, – we were standing 50 metres away. We had to mm. be fully covered. Mm. It was so hot. Yeah. But it was the only house that's ever survived that scenario. And it's called a test of failure. Oh, wow. And all I used was soil, a, a really simple building material called magnesium oxide, a completely natural building material, okay. and, and straw, steel frame. And yeah. through that test – I've ended up getting involved in lots of like ended up designing a house that was burnt down in the Black Saturday bushfire and, you know, got to meet some really, really smart people and learnt a lot yeah. and bushfire building conference I've spoken at and met some brilliant scientists there and just kind of got to know a lot about what it is that we've done. Mm. Talking to them about their key areas of research, has that helped you in your designs and understanding of Absolutely. how the structures work? Yeah. yeah. And I remember the Australian National University did this really comprehensive study. The professor was the speaker before me. So I listened and watched his whole presentation. They analyzed every single property, took them uh, three and a half years, every property affected mm. by fire in Black Saturday. Th- talking thousands of properties. Mm. And I analyzed did satellite uh, imaging and worked out what trees were where. And they came up with a list of plants that protected houses and they had a top 10. They analyzed all these particular trees and some had really high moisture levels. Other, you know, some died like magnolia, for instance. They regarded the magnolia as having saved quite a few houses. 
Because people planted them as hedges or they had old magnolias near there. A lot of them are planted really close to houses. Yeah, yeah. and what happens is they vaporise. As the fire front oh. comes and gets hot, they, they turn to vapour. Yeah. And they actually create a moist barrier around the house, the complete opposite to what a eucalypt does. Yeah. And lily pillies and other things do the same, right? So, it like, I kind of knew that, but I didn't know that it was such so significant. Mm. But there's a really, I think that eucalypts, it's, it's interesting because I love them. I love the smell of them. I love the flowers. I love how much honey I get when they flower. Mm. You know, we've got messmate forests around us. But I'll never forget going deep into the Amazon in Peru and our guide who was, we went for a four-day trek into the Amazon and I, I introduced myself to our guide who was a botanist. I said, my name's Joost Bakker and he said, that's a Dutch name. Where are you from? I said, well, I'm actually from Australia. And then Jenny, my wife, was with me and uh, he said, I like Australians but I don't like Australian plants. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, the Australian eucalypt will destroy the Amazon. And he explained that we have lightning strikes every in the wet season every afternoon. Yeah, right. Guaranteed. And the lightning hits the Amazon and because it's so moist and because it, the foliage is so lush, it doesn't do anything yeah. other than create a burn mark on a tree or a hole in the ground. But as we're cutting the forest down, the only tree – so that what they do is they cut the forest down. They'll grow two or three years of crops. The soils are so poor there. There's no topsoil there. Oh, really? It's just this rock clay. Like when they raise the forest, it's just like this carpet of humus is gone and there's nothing left. So, so they can only grow oh, two or three crops. Oh, right. okay. Then they graze for a few years and then there's no fertility there. So the animals actually can't even reproduce. They become unproductive yeah. and fertile. So they take animals off and the only thing that will grow there is the Australian eucalypt. So they're planting, this is 20 years ago okay. when I was there, they were planting millions and millions of eucalypts and that was causing wildfires. Uh, right. And so in 2019 when the Amazon was burning, I'm like listening to his words are ringing in my ear. Like, you're right. And I feel that the, the Australian eucalypt has used humans to, you know, they're everywhere now. Yeah. They're in Europe, they're in they're Russia, in they're, in, they're in, you know, they've, causing problems in Nepal where we've donated them to stop landslides in. And it's really interesting if you look at the history of the eucalypt in Australia. I think we need to talk about pre-human and post-human because there's lots of evidence that shows that eucalypts were not the dominant species pre-human. You hardly found them here. There was diversity, but there was much greater diversity of other species. It was once we started introducing fire to control the landscapes that the, the eucalypt, of course, took hold. And it's really interesting to see that in those places that we've destroyed around the world and it's now being planted in Africa and other places like that, mm. where things are almost turning into desert and the last kind of thing that, that will stop that from happening is the Australian eucalypt. But that in itself causes, you know, all sorts of problems. And I had a woman with me doing the flower run and she wants to become a florist. And we've got these huge vases at the Stoke House that hold 45 litres of water. Mm. And the previous week I had cottonous grey smokebush. And I had, you know, two inches of three inches of water in the vase. And then she went to fill the vase up and I said, it needs to be filled to the top, mm -hmm. 40 litres. Oh, really? And we filled it with eucalyptus. Anyway, the following week I came back, the vase was empty. For the smokebush? No, the eucalyptus. Oh, for the had eucalyptus. 
And she just, oh my God. I said, well, this is the reason why soils are so dry. Like they just suck. They drink so much water and they suck so much water out of the ground. That's why it's impossible to grow anything else under the, under the ground. And that's why it makes no sense to me that they just, they're so dry. Because they drink so much water, you would mm. think that the, the trees, like if I use oak, mm. oaks don't drink water at all. From a vase, I'm talking, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. So it's so interesting that this tree, which has become such a big part of our culture, it doesn't suit, you know, humans existing in nature. It mm. doesn't coexist well mm. because it dries out and makes makes really dry, barren ground. If there's a 40 degree day, the rosellas and the king parrots and the cockatoos aren't in the eucalypts. They're sitting in the oak tree. Yeah. That's on my boundary because yeah. it's 15, 20 degrees cooler. Yeah. And yeah, I just wish that we would be a bit more rational about and ha- and have rational conversations around what landscaping and, you know, what, what trees to plant around houses. Because if we want to not turn the air conditioning on as much, maybe we should think about planting different trees around our houses. Mm. I love eucalypts. There's no doubt about it. But I think they shouldn't be in and around our houses the way that we, we have embraced them. Yeah, particularly some of the bigger species. Um, and I think that's what we see that's sort of the dominant types of eucalypts on the east coast of Australia where most of the population is, yeah. um, you know, those larger trees. What are some more suitable tree species that people could use if they wanted to put them in their garden? Well, I mean, there's we, we're really only using a few hundred yeah. species. I mean, there's 30,000 edible plants. Urban areas are already incredibly diverse because of different cultures, different interests, mm. different plants. But we could be using and utilizing so many more plants that could cool our environment, that can feed us, that can be food and habitat for other living things, birds, butterflies, you know. So eucalypts are great from a a bee point of view and from Mm. native bees and that sort of thing. So, you know, the physifolia that's flowering at the moment, I counted 12 different bees on the flowers, you know, native and and European bees. But there's so many, diversity is the key. Mm. Pick plants that keep your environment cool in summer and just interplant them with with things like eucalypts, you know, because having them around your house in the middle of summer doesn't do a great deal. I mean, you don't see people, I've just been to our local high school and I've just planted all these eucalypts and the kids are all complaining that there's no shade. And if you look at the way that a, a eucalypt behaves, it, the leaves hang down, there's very little mm. shade, even under the oldest tree, unless you can find a big branch or something to sit underneath, you know, whereas a lot of European trees will provide that beautiful shade that you want on those really hot days. Mm, mm. And native birds will tell you they're not sitting in the eucalypts, they're sitting <laughs> in those trees yeah. that are deciduous, you know, and and even I had black cockatoos sitting in the oak tree yeah. recently. A lot of people I, that I speak to really struggle with picking a particular plant for their, for their garden. So, Let's give people some ideas if they wanted a tree or if they wanted shade in their garden. There's oak trees if you've got the space. I think there's dwarf forms of oak trees. Yeah, I mean, look, deciduous trees are just um, – if if they weren't invented invented, and somebody came up with a deciduous tree, you'd go, this is genius, you know. I've got <laughs> yeah. light in, in winter when I want lots of sun yeah. and I've got shade in yeah. summer when I want shade. Yeah. I just do not understand why we don't embrace deciduous trees more, especially in Australia. Yeah. And you can choose – you know, so many different ones. And they all, you know, do well when you prune them back, you know, like a Quercus rubra or many of the oaks are brilliant at being, you can almost coppice them back down to a tree stump Mm. and they'll regrow. So Mm. 
maintaining them down to a size that's manageable is easy. And they also are great nesting trees. Lots of native birds love nesting in, you know, because oak trees have like really good nooks and crannies mm, for nests. They do. So I'm a big fan of that. And from a hedge point of view, I think magnolias are really good, evergreen magnolias. I think they came in number one at the ANU okay. for bushfire resilience. Yeah. And they'll die. They'll burn and they'll die in a yeah. bushfire, but you've got a very good chance of saving your house because yeah. of the microclimate that they yeah. create. Yeah. And then there's so many different like grevilleas and uh, great natives that are high moisture, lily pillies. Yeah. So many different lily pillies coming out yeah. that prune really well as well if you want to keep something. And then all the edible stuff. You know, there's so many um, different edible plants that you can grow. Pomegranates, apricots, you know, getting those apricots just before – Christmas, mm. the best. They're, oh, the best. So, yeah, there's all the deciduous fruit trees that people Yeah, be and then, you know, well. the, there's plenty of stuff flowering in December, January, February, March. What's so great about an apricot is that it already starts to flower in June, July, and that's when bees are desperate for nectar and pollen. Mm. So it's a really early flowering tree. So I always try and, like, I have lots of rosemary planted out that flowers and starts flowering in April, May, June for my bees. Yep. And then the apricots, I've just planted another 50 because, and they smell so good, especially the ornamental apricot. The perfume that comes from that tree is unbelievable. Oh, beautiful. I haven't heard of the ornamental apricot before. Yeah, it's, um, it was really popular in the 60s and people stopped okay. growing it. Yeah. And um, I got some, I got JFT to graft some up for me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it flowers in July. Nice. So it yeah, starts flowering right. end of June, yeah. finishes flowering in, yeah. in late July, and that's when all the other stuff starts flowering. Mm. So it's so important to have those plants are going to provide food for bees and other insects, particularly in winter, but throughout, you know, throughout the year yeah. so that you people can provide a home for those insects. Plus birds. Lots yes. of lots yes. of nectar. Of yeah. course. And then they'll they'll hang around so that your plants will get pollinated, particularly your food plants yeah. that you want fruit off will get pollinated because they've already made a home yeah. in that in that little region. Has that answered your question? Yeah. Pretty well. <laughs> Pretty well. Let's keep. Let's stay on um, sort of urban environment. So, oh, smoke bush is another one. Sorry. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's just stunning. Cottonus. I've got cottonus grace. It's 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 quite prolific, but it just you can cut it back down to nothing. Going to say you can prune the bejeebas out of it. Yeah, yeah. and it's a high moisture plant, so yeah. you know it won't burn. So it's a great one to plant. Yeah. The reason I'm asking you about particular plant species is no one will put out a list of plants suited, you know, to fire-prone areas because oh, I want to get, I'll do the, get I'll sued. I'll do it after this and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you should. I don't care about getting sued. <laughs> a lot of people won't do it because of the, you know, someone will come and say, well, my house burnt down and I plant all the plants you told me to. But people need to know the ones that will give them a better chance at either slowing down a fire or stopping it getting to the house in whatever way. This is kind of an important suite of plants. So that's why I keep well, pressing I mean, you for particular I've, I'm working on a design, on a new design, because I don't want to just – I get asked to design houses all the time, and I don't want to design people's houses. Mm. But I, it's clear that people are desperate for a, a more resilient design. Yeah. And so I'm now working on a flat pack design that is completely natural – I'm hoping to get organic certification to be the world's first organically certified house. So the straw that goes into the compressed panel will be coming from organic wheat. Yeah. But the way that I've 
changed the roof. It's now a wicking bed. So there will always be – so let's say you get 25 mils of rain. Yep. It won't even make its way down the gutter because the, the water will stay on the roof and will keep the roof moist. And again, it makes for much more resilient – you know, in, in Melbourne as well, you yeah. always get a good dump every once a month. It's yeah. very – rare that you'll get eight weeks without rain. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, – and and then surround your house with – like if you've got veggie patches and stuff like that where you're constantly watering. Mm-hmm. I mean, every person on average uses between 500 and 900 litres or 1,000 litres of water a day. You know, that's the average in Melbourne. It's, it's 600 and something is the average. Mm. That water goes out as grey water. Yeah. Well, you know, get that into an Aggie system and get that surrounding your house so that Things like pears and especially stonefoot will filter out any toxins if you're concerned about that. Yeah. Apples, pears, apricots, they're brilliant at sitting above aggie systems. Mm, okay. And that means that the trees stay lush too. So in the middle of summer when yeah. everything looks like it's dead, you'll have this really lush garden and they'll be full of moisture and if a fire does come, you know, yeah. you, you'll feel a lot lot safer about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and that comes down to, yeah, Smart, smart plant selection. Yeah. yeah, and then you've got the, one of the reasons why I love magnolias is because they're so drought tolerant. Mm. You know, once they've once they've taken, you don't need to water them. You don't need to water yeah. them. They stay really yeah. lush and green. Yeah, and you can prune them back really hard into hedges and, and. And when you look at the flowers closely, like the the flowers do make a mess, but but goes in the compost, breaks down really well. Uh, they're really juicy. The yeah. petals are really ju- – there's a lot of water in them. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of water in them. Yeah. Yeah. How can we increase our biodiversity in, in suburban backyards? So when I plant, I plant for the time of year. So I might have a week that there's not a lot flowering. So then I'll think, okay, what can I plant next year? What can I plant now so that next year I've got something flowering? Mm-hmm. So I have something flowering on my – farm every single week year round mm-hmm. could be daphne in the middle of winter in july or or i've got lots of daffodils or it could be dandelions i've planted dandelions i've planted different clovers so that my grasses have all these different flowers flowering mm. it's not just about the yeah it's the lawn is has this biodiversity to it as well yeah. you know so there's always different things i mean you you dandelions are incredible doesn't the bees go crazy for them oh, they do yeah and you know they put these big tap roots down and then when the dandelion dies, you've got this great funnel-shaped hole in the ground that allows water to penetrate deep into the clay. And, you know, the water holding capacity of your soil changes a lot. Mm. So, you know, I don't understand why we don't embrace. I also believe that we should be using dandelions for our tires. For our tires? Yeah, well, dandelion per hectare is as productive as a rubber tree. Okay. And it makes such a great green crop. So anybody that grows wheat, barley, rice, oats could be planting dandelions as a cover crop, as a green crop. Mm-hmm. All those big tap roots that can go down so deep into the subsoil are great for – and also the biology around the roots is is massive. You create all this nectar for mm. bees and then they can harvest the dandelions and crush them in and get the latex out and produce um, tires and – My goodness. I, I, was, I thought, did I hear you wrong when you said tires? <laughs> no, it's crazy that we're using yeah. – I mean, it's – People don't realise that oh, harvesting ru- rubber is so unsustainable. Well, but the thing is, we're growing it in a part of the world where you know we've got some of the rarest and most incredible forests, mm. and it's a very small part of the world where we can grow the rubber tree. Yeah, and they're all genetically identical to a tree that was selected 200 years ago or 150 years ago. 
So they're prone to be wiped out by disease any day soon. And I know that they are suffering from different diseases. I've heard that as well. But you've got this great crop that 90% of the world's farmers could be growing as yeah, a green okay. crop yeah. and could be supplying. Continental makes bike tires and Formula One tires out of, out of dandelion rubber. And the Russians have been doing it since in World War II when Japan controlled Malaysia. Suddenly they controlled the world's rubber. And so no one could access rubber from Malaysia. And so Russia started growing dandelions mm. and started supplying America with rubber. So they harvesting, I'm just thinking about weeds for a second. Are they harvesting them before they finish flowering? Um, no, they wait for it to flower. Okay. So yeah, they wait for, it's about getting the plant as large as possible and it's the roots. So it's yep. a combination of the leaves and the roots. Okay. And what's so beautiful about it is it really breaks up the subsoil. So yeah. you don't need to rip, you don't need to do any of the stuff. So you can just plant a crop straight after. Yeah. Oh, my mind's a little bit blown by that. <laughs> Using dandelions. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, we could be using them for shoes. We could be using them. And it's like, yeah. you know, imagine the Anything difference. Anything that we use rubber for. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. Incredible. On farming, conventional farming, for me, is sort of this high reliance on chemicals, synthetic chemicals, and monoculture farming has, for me, been on the increase since World War II, maybe a little bit, maybe since post-World War One. How can agriculture become more sustainable and more environmentally friendly? Jeez, that's a question. It's a, a big question. question. Yeah. Well, when Fritz Haber and Bosch shared the Nobel Prize in 1918, the world's population was 1.8 billion. And what did they win the Nobel Prize for? For inventing the Haber-Bosch process. So Fritz Haber worked out how to extract nitrogen from gas and Bosch worked out how to do it at scale. So okay. those two, without that invention, the Green Revolution, it would never have happened. And suddenly, it's a really interesting time. I'm, so I'm, I have, sorry, I, excuse my ignorance. I haven't heard of these guys before. So what they invented, did so they- So Fritz, Fritz Haber was an incredible chemist that going back 100 years, especially 1910s, Europe's population had doubled and it had doubled because they were mining bird droppings basically from Africa, from Nauru, places that they'd settled and conquered. Those bird droppings were becoming harder to find and so they had doubled production of food in Europe, hence being able to also double so the, the population. the bird droppings as fertilizer? Yeah, okay. shipping it to Europe, right. importing fertilizer basically. Yeah. There was big debate about how can the how can we possibly feed 2 billion people when these resources are running out mm. and so there was a huge uh, interest in finding alternative methods of finding nitrogen bringing nitrogen back to soil and so that invention changed everything because suddenly the most critical ingredient is of course nitrogen when you're growing food yep. so that started the Green Revolution and there's 8 billion people on Earth today because of that invention. There's no doubt. What does their invention do? It makes nitrogen from synthetic gas. Right. It extracts it. Okay. So we use about 5% of the world's gas to make the world's fertilizer. Okay. And, what, and that has caused, in my opinion, an epidemic of malnourishment because nitrogen is only one element. Yeah. When you... Supply soil with nitrogen. Plants grow like crazy. Yeah. But it doesn't contain manganese, iron, uh, calcium, all the other macro and micro 
nutrients that we need to thrive and survive. Mm. And so our soils have been completely mined of all those other minerals, mm. but we're still getting massive yields. So Just we've got- Overuse of nitrogen. Yeah, my friend Dan Barbara in, uh, in New York, he's got a brilliant restaurant called Blue Hill. He says it brilliantly, a slice of bread or a sandwich 100 years ago was equivalent to eating a loaf of bread today. Nutrient um, load, yeah. Yeah, and so now that we've mined all the world's soil, we, what do we do now? Yeah. And so that's why I'm all about zero waste because our nutrients, we generate the nutrients every day. We just need to return them back to soil. Mm. We haven't followed nature's law and returned back what we have. And that's why I'm such a big believer in urban food systems because mm. that's where we generate waste. Yeah. And less reliance on big, on large scale farming as well. I, we don't need large scale farming. Yeah. We don't need to be farming what the way that we're farming. It's, it's, you know, this insane system where we grow huge amounts of food and only a few different elements. They're not even nourishing animals properly. You know, we need to supplement even animal food today because mm. the crops that are coming off land don't nourish. You know, there's, no, there's fertility mm. issues not only in us. Our fertility rate has halved yeah. in my lifetime. They started, I was born in 1973. They started mm. measuring fertility rate in 1974 it's 48% less today all over the Western world than what it was in 1974. And anyone that's farmed animals knows that they need a salt lick. They need uh, nutrients. They need to yeah. rotate, you know, and we somehow think that we can just keep extracting without returning and it's coming home to roost. We can't keep doing this. And that's why I believe we need to move to circular systems. We need to move to ways of growing our food mm. and incorporating what we waste. There shouldn't be any waste. Mm. Waste shouldn't exist, full stop. And I think that our farmland can be used. I think eucalypts could be perfect. They could be perfect for making aviation fuel. That could be perfect for, for um, agroforestry and growing crops for other things, to bring fertility back to soil, to bring carbon back into soil. And if you look at one example, Yan Yan Gert Farm, a brilliant example, the Stewart family down in Deans Marsh. About 30 years ago, they worked with uh, Professor Rowan Reed, a brilliant agroforestry. Uh, he teaches agroforestry at Melbourne University. And they mapped their farm, 650 acre farm. The farm was no longer productive, had been in the family for 100 years. So they mapped the farm and they identified places that were suffering erosion that weren't productive and they started planting trees. Mm. In the last 30 years, they've planted 55,000 trees, 250 different species, and only locked up 15% of their land. Right. And eight years ago, started harvesting high-quality timber. So they grow for timber, but they also grow for birds. And, and there's trees that will mm. never be harvested mm. in there, ever. Trees that can't be touched, but trees that are actually planted for high-grade yep. high timber. Yeah. The average farm in Australia is 4,000 acres and we know that 20% of farmland in Australia is unproductive. Yeah. So we could be planting billions of trees right now for future timber supplies because one of the big things that we discovered in 2020 with the oh. bushfires was plantation forests. Yeah. It is the worst form of land use. Mm. Locking up land in a worst possible monoculture systems like planting wheat as a monoculture okay that's that's an annual crop planting one tree species 
all exactly the same age, mm. all exactly the same mm. distance apart. I took a camera crew with me into a, a plantation forest and they said, we can't hear anything. The sound guy yeah, was like checking goes, this is eerie. Yeah, there's no is. sound. There's no birds. Yep. There's no wildlife. Yeah. There's nothing. Yeah. Starting back to where we started with this interview, talking about green, the greenhouse that you had at Fed Square. Yep. And all the systems and low waste and growing your own food, strawberries all up the walls or whatever you had. Well, Melbourne can feed itself. Yeah. If you think about how many people are currently not satisfied, they're underutilized, they feel like they're not part of a community, I don't think everyone's going to grow their own food. But doing the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden with my kids and spending a lot of time in schools, I've worked out, I believe that a third of us Mm. love growing food, Mm. love getting our hands dirty. We get such a kick out of it. So there's in a city like Melbourne with 3 million people, there's a million of us that should be growing food. Yeah, There's so much potential for a city like Melbourne to grow its own food. Then we've got all this land that we can use for other reasons, agroforestry. Like people don't yeah. realize that the combustion engine, in, like the diesel engine was designed by, uh, I can't remember his first name, but uh, he was a socialist, a French socialist. And it was designed to run on peanut oil. Diesel wasn't even a thing. It didn't even exist. The combustion engine was designed to run on ethanol. Petrol wasn't a thing. And then when Henry Ford designed the Model T Ford, Rockefeller gave him some petrol and said, I want you to design this car to run on petrol because I've got it as a byproduct because he was supplying oil for oil lamps and heaters. Mm -hmm. He had this really flammable, volatile byproduct called petrol. Okay. Gasoline. So Henry Ford tested it on his car and yeah. said, I can't use it. And he said, why? Well, it stinks when it comes out. It stinks when it comes out of the car and the it d- destroys my engine. Mm. I have to change the oil every 5,000 miles. The engine will only last a third of the time. All cars at that time were running on alcohol. And there were over 35,000 distilleries in the US. So Henry Ford, wanted, Ford said, this is the perfect fuel because mm. all the farmers – are producing fuel, uh, alcohol out of mm. their byproduct. And so um, Rockefeller did something very clever. It's probably the smartest business move that anyone's ever made. He donated $4 million US dollars to the Temperance Society. And within two years, the making of alcohol in any form was completely banned in the United States. Yeah, it was. And he pretty much killed the alternative fuel industry overnight. And Henry Ford tried to change legislation because what you couldn't actually run a car on pure gasoline you needed to add alcohol to stop it from knocking Mm -hmm. and so rockefeller was kind of stuck because he now had he couldn't access alcohol anymore Mm. so how can we use gasoline so they came up with this brilliant idea of adding lead and i've got a new york times article that was written in 1920 yeah where a doctor writes a letter to the New York Times, which is written on the front page saying, we cannot use lead. The Romans worked out that lead is toxic. If we add it to our fuel, it will cause our IQ levels to drop and it will cause all sorts of problems. It took almost 100 years <laughs> to get lead wow. out. Of, but the reason why they added lead was because they could no longer add alcohol okay. into the fuel blend yeah. to stop the knocking. Anyway, that's why I'm so passionate about eucalypts because I think eucalypts, you, you only need a ton of leaves to produce 40 gallons of of alcohol mm. and then you get this brilliant biomass product that can then be incorporated back into soils or can be used for other things making paper do eucalypts in particular have a higher level of 
an alcohol in their foliage um, because no. of the vol- because of the oils in no, it? No, no. There's lots of like sorghum. So okay. there's lots of sorghum is a really high yield. Anything anything with starch that produces starch is is great for making alcohol. Yeah. But where the debate has gone wrong is that America's using corn. Corn is probably the worst one to use. Mm. You should be making it out of the byproduct, out of the waste. So mm-hmm. Brazil runs a lot of their cows and trucks on alcohol, mm-hmm. but they use the byproduct after extracting the sugar. So sugarcane is brilliant, but not don't use a primary food source. Use the byproduct. And I'll give you an example. Um, the world's first feedlots were breweries. So breweries, yeah. breweries used to give their spent grain to farmers. Mm. And it was a brewery in Paris that thought, hang on, what about if I put some cows in my brewery? So he, w- he was actually the first person to have a feedlot in the world. Okay. And it was so successful that all the other breweries caught on. I think there were 30,000 breweries in New York alone. Right. And they all had cows. Yeah. And they were using their spent – and they were selling the milk cheap, right? Yeah. Well, a cow has lots of issues digesting raw grains. Fermenting them, making alcohol, and then giving them the grain – is much better for their gut. Yeah. They don't need to ha- take antibiotics and other problematic things and they grow 30% faster on it. Yep. So just think about all of the grain that we feed to animals globally. Fresh grain, yeah. If we fermented that, mm. the amount of alcohol that we – and then the food waste mm. and then the plastic waste. A ton of plastic waste produces 8,500 litres of ethanol if you pyrolysize it. Right. We produced 400 million tons of plastic waste last year yeah. and only 9% of it was recycled. Okay. So there's our, we don't need to be drilling for oil. We no. don't need to be fighting wars. We've got everything we need in our waste. Yeah. It's just about c- celebrating these materials. Yeah. Stop calling them waste because the language is what actually absolutely. defines it. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm so obsessed about zero waste. <laughs> I, I can see why. This is absolutely um, just blowing my mind at the moment. I'm going to have a million questions as soon as we hit the stop button. <laughs> I want to try to wrap it up with this. What I'm getting of this closed loop in my head comes down to people growing their own food and, and using achievable, accessible ways to deal with their waste. Let's try to find a better word for it. But farming as well, instead of relying on large-scale conventional farming that we are now, is having farmers and landowners assess their properties, work out what are the areas that really aren't being productive for them, and incorporating agroforestry systems. Yeah, I mean, you know, and 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 using those areas to harvest for fuels. Yeah, fuel, yeah. timber. I mean, Australia could be if we if we start today, we could be supplying the world sustainable timber for the next yeah. ten thousand years, really. And we're in a timber shortage at the moment. Like building Absolutely. conventional houses, every project is delayed because yep. you can't get we're timber. Importing timber from Chile, it's right. insane. Yeah, you know, and and we've destroyed almost every single biodiverse forest on Earth trying to yeah. access timber. Sweden has lost 35% of its natural forest in the last 17 years. Yeah. We really, like, whether you have done an environmental degree or you have just finished school, we really, I think most people know that we do not need to be clearing land. We have cleared so much land, not just in Australia, but across the world. Yeah, but but it's the reason we're clearing more land is because the land that we've cleared, we've mined. Yes. Of nutrients. Yep. If 
we returned the nutrients back to that land, we wouldn't need more land. And it's mm. as simple as that. I mean, I, I understand why people are clearing land. Yeah. But I can understand why they're clearing it too. But they also need to be open to other ways that they could yeah. be using their land instead of just relying on what's, you know, in Australia, what we've been doing for the last 150, 200 years. Yeah. And I, I see, um, you know, some great examples of like corridors on farms, not just Australian natives, but like interplanted with uh, great like oaks and exotic trees, mm. a teak, um, things that it's diversity is key. And we need to help farmers do this. We pay an insane, Australia's one of the world pays so much money, Qantas, you know, it's something like 12% of people that fly Qantas tick the box and offset their flight. I've spoken to Qantas about this and they're really excited by the idea of their carbon credits going to Australian farmers to plant trees. We need to help farmers do this. We need mm. to help farmers transition mm. to this. And they've, you know, they need to be supported. It's mm. not something that we, oh, you should do this. Absolutely. You know? Every industry needs to be supported to move into something that is sustainable and or closed loop because yeah. that change scares people. But if people are educated and supported in the new way to, to go about it that is better for people, then, you know, it makes the transition a lot easier. Yeah, and it's there's so many things that we can do. Like so let's say, let's say we embrace fermentation. Let's say the world gets excited about fermentation mm. and we start making all of our aviation fuel and all of our fuels that we need for our cars and, and trucks mm. out of crop residue. Then post-fermentation, you've got this incredible material that can then be turned into biochar, mm. another energy source, huge energy source. And then once it's turned into biochar, we can impregnate it back into our soils and increase the carbon level. And so this is restorative consumption. Buying a pair of runners from Adidas made from dandelions is a restorative process mm. because those dandelions have restored soil mm. rather than taken from soil. And so we need to, as consumers, embrace those ideas. Amen. And I think Levi and- Strauss coming out and saying that by 2025, they will make no denim out of virgin cotton. Mm. All their denim will be made out of uh, recycled denim. Well, think about how much water pesticides land America uses just to grow cotton. Yeah. So these are really exciting changes. And that's why I'm, I feel that we're in the middle of one of the world's biggest revolutions. But when you're in the middle, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah. I think that 100 years from now, we'll look back at this time and go, wow, this is when, and it's because we're all aware. We all know that we need to change. We all understand because of, we're all carrying now so much information in our hands with our phones. Yeah. It's such an exciting time and everyone's – all you need is people to be on board mm. and embrace this idea. I'm going to leave it there because I think that's a really nice spot to finish on. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, enthusiasm and knowledge today. Yoast, I appreciate it. Thank oh, thank you very you. much. That was great. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast is brought to you by the Diggers Foundation. In order to bring these discussions into the open, we require ongoing funding and ask that you visit the Diggers website for more information on our purpose and how to make a donation towards preserving garden traditions, educating Australian gardeners and making a better world through gardening. Visit www.diggers.com.au.